0: Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info.
1: We're back for another Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you all for joining us once again. Um. We are going to talk about the elections today. The uh, primary runoff in Georgia is coming up a week from today. And just basically uh, three months from today, although the date on the calendar has it as three months from yesterday, the third, we're going to be voting for president, uh, U.S. senators, uh, all of the uh, races on the general election ballot on November 3rd. That's like, what, 11 weeks? Weeks away, hard to believe. Uh, so we're going to do a lot of talking about uh, the election on this show today. And to do that, we've got Greg Bluestein, who is uh, with us on Tuesday. Usually here on Wednesdays, but Greg, thank you so much for switching days so we can talk politics with you. How, how uh, Greg, of course, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. How are you doing, Greg?
2: It feels like my week is almost halfway over. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> Thank you for uh, being with us today. Uh, uh, professor Alan Abramowitz is uh, with us as well. He, of course, is politi- professor of political science at Emory at University and one of the country's leading prognosticators, modelers of elections. And we're going to talk in a little while about your latest model, Alan, of how the presidential race seems to be unfolding. It's a fascinating uh, document uh, to look at. Thank you Ellen for being with us today.
3: Sure glad to be with you again.
1: Uh, Caesar Mitchell is back with us and we're very happy that you are Caesar's former president of the Atlanta City Council candidate uh, for mayor a few years back now a partner with the world's largest law firm, Denton's. Mm-hmm. Caesar, it's really good to have you back now that we're back to talking pure politics, uh, on at least some of our shows, it's a pleasure to have you back on. Are you uh, unmute your phone, Caesar? All right. all right, we're still unfortunately not. We're all right. Are you there? It's great to be
2: back.
1: All right. All right. Um, we're going to try to work on your audio a little bit. It's a little mm-hmm. shaky, but we'll come back to you in just a second. Brian Robinson is uh, back with us today, the proprietor of Robinson, the Robinson <laughs> Republic a Communications and a Political Consulting firm. Brian, of course, has a portfolio that includes having worked for Congressman Lynn Westmoreland on Capitol Hill and then went on to be Nathan Deal's communications director in uh, Governor Deal's first (coughs) term in the uh, governor's mansion. Brian, how are you?
0: I'm doing fantastic, Bill. It's great to be with you. I tell you, it's so nice that you all are talking politics again. Yeah, I agree with you. Um,
1: Caesar. we're hearing you on the air right now, so I'm going to ask Tom Faust to uh, work on that with you just a little bit. All right, now... We want to talk about uh, runoff uh, uh, races that are coming up next week. As we do, Greg, let's point out that um, I think you have to say there's been a fairly significant interest in the race so far. Early voting, there's well over a quarter of a million people have cast early ballots uh, in this race. It appears they're fairly evenly split between Democrats and Republicans, although I think there's more energy in terms of Republican than Democratic runoffs. But I mean, it, and this is the final week of early voting, and this is when it usually gets big. So not bad for a midsummer summer uh, 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 election, don't you think, Greg?
2: Yeah, not bad at all, especially for one without a statewide race uh, on the ballot, you know, because J- yeah. John Ossoff avoided uh, a runoff in the Senate race. And there's no other you know big statewide races out there so to have a quarter of a million voters already casting their ballots more than 253,000 already and that number is going to rise um, this this final week of of early voting so expect that number to, to continue to soar uh, shows you how much interest there is in in, in, in politics in Georgia especially when we're only talking about really two two big federal races in the 9th and 14th district um, that that are that are attract, attracting national attention at least
1: Um, And we're going to talk about those races in uh, just a minute. Uh, Alan, uh, this is a a, a primary runoff, but it also suggests how much appetite there is for uh, people to want to vote, whether it's in a primary runoff or in November. I mean, this all suggests that we're going to have an enormous turnout in November, doesn't it, Alan?
3: Absolutely. Um, We saw a very big turnout in the uh, June 9th, a primary despite uh, all the issues uh, that we had with voting on Election Day. Um, We saw a surge in absentee ballots. I think we're going to see the same thing in November. And um, hopefully by then the uh, Secretary of State's office and the counties will have solved the problems uh, that we saw on on June 9th and uh, things will go a little more smoothly.
1: Uh, That would be a a
3: very good thing for the voters
1: of the state of Georgia. And we're going to be talking, we'll be talking about that uh, on Political Rewind, how they're really preparing to solve some of the problems uh, they had, both at the county levels and as the Secretary of State's office needs to get increasingly involved in that. But let's turn, and Brian Robinson, I'm sorry to do this to you, the very first real topic of the show today, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to recuse you, and I'm glad that Mm -hmm. you are transparent about your uh, politics, you're representing uh, one of the candidates we're going to talk about in a second here. So I appreciate the fact that you understand. We'll let you make some comment at some point. But Greg Bluestein, mm-hmm. the 14th Congressional District race uh, is one of the most high-profile races uh, right now, largely because Marjorie Taylor Greene is a basically a QAnon candidate running in the runoff for that seat. Talk about the race, talk about her opponent, and then let's get to the headline uh, in a moment uh, that we uh, have this morning.
2: Yeah, and let's set the stage for this race, too, because it's the 14th district, It's the northwest Georgia district, that is very, very conservative. Um, it's one of the most conservative districts on the eastern seaboard, so very unlikely that, that a Democrat will end up winning this race. Um, Tom Graves, one of Georgia's senior most, he was Georgia's senior most Republican a uh, member of the congressional delegation uh, decided to, to stand down, to not run for another term uh, late last year, so it w- opened a wide-open race. And at first, there was a lot of talk about you know a, a former lawmaker, a sitting lawmaker, um, taking that seat. But uh, instead, Marjorie Taylor Greene ended up in first place. It's just short of uh, an outright win, but still in first place in the June primary, she is a construction executive who moved into the district from, from really the 6th district, the suburban Atlanta. She originally was, was uh, competing against Karen Handel and decided not to, not to continue running in that race and switching and moving to the 14th district. Um, she had the early money re- lead. She had the early activism lead and really uh, benefited from a, from a pretty crowded primary. Um, she has a history of racist and xenophobic comments. Uh, including uh, attacking Muslims who were elected to office, she's peddled QAnon theories. She's wondered on Facebook whether the 2017 Las Vegas massacre was a, w- massacre was a plot to do away with the Second Amendment. Um, so she has all sorts of comments that have come out before she started, before she won the, she was first in the primary, and since then, Politico has also published even more videos of her that led to pretty much a, a exodus of support. Um, usually Republican officials will kind of you know play neutral, but here they're um, they they've endorsed her opponent, John Cowan.
1: well, that's that's what I was going to say very quickly, uh, so we can t- talk about the headline story. This is the, the candidate who Brian Robinson is representing. Tell us about him.
2: Yeah, John Cowan is a is a Rome neurosurgeon who is also very, very conservative. Uh, but he is kind of p- uh, framing himself as the conservative. Mm who is not going to be an embarrassment. Um, he is he is sort of, you All know, right. I wouldn't even say mainstream, but just someone who's not going to embarrass the Republican Party.
1: All right. So Jim Galloway called me about 15 minutes before he went on the air this morning, and he said, have you seen the Channel 2 interview with Marjorie Taylor Greene that aired last night? I said, no, I haven't. I played it in that interview uh, and Caesar Mitchell, I understand we have you with us now, so I want to work you into this conversation too. But start with Alan, and then Caesar, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. In the interview last night, Alan said that George Soros, who was a Hungar- is a Hungarian-born multi gazillionaire as we know, philanthropist, right. and often excoriated by the right wing in this country, that he right. he basically. Worked to, and I'm going to use her words; they're horrifying. I apologize to burn Jews mm-hmm. uh, it, during the Holocaust. He, he was, in fact, a teenage, a teenager uh, during World War II. It's it's right. one of those uh, malicious pernicious rumors that's been per, uh, perpetrated, but she said it in a TV interview, and when the really terrific reporter pressed her on it, she didn't back down for a second. Alan, what the heck?
3: Um, yeah, so um, if she's, if she's been pushing a variety of these uh, bizarre conspiracy theories uh, and the, uh, the thing, and she did finish first in, in the Republican primary, she got over 40% of the vote. And, and, and I think what we have to understand is there are a lot of Republican voters in this state and around this country who are attracted to the kinds of views that she is uh, promoting. Now, not necessarily exactly what she said last night, but uh, some of the other things tied to QAnon, some of the other sort of conspiracy theories, the idea of a deep state, That's trying to undermine President Trump. Uh, And part of the reason, I think, for the broad appeal these have among Republican voters is that the president himself at times has given voice to these sorts of conspiracy theories and promoted them. Um, So it isn't that surprising. So um, now we're seeing Republican uh, officials are are uniting against her uh, in the runoff. And we'll see how effective that is uh, and whether whether they're able to stop her. I think you know. I think, as Brian is suggesting, it's going to probably be a very close race.
1: Caesar, um, uh, the one I think the only time I took issue with the Channel Two story, which was terrific, was they said she'd be the first QAnon candidate elected to the United States Congress. I if that, there, are, in fact, there are several candidates who are at least tangentially. Uh, uh, interested, involved with QAnon on, on that on Republican ballots in congressional races around the country. What what do what do we make about the uh, apparent popularity of v- candidates embracing QAnon among some some Republican voters right now?
4: Well, I, I think I, I agree with Alan. I think there are a number of factors at play. Number one, let's not forget, this is still a primary election. This is a primary runoff election. So uh, I think she takes playing to the base to a whole new unprecedented Mm -hmm. level, candidly, Uh, number one. And and number two, I I think, as as Alan mentioned, I think, you know, President Trump uh, is a part of the play to the base uh, for candidates who are trying to make it through uh, the primary, and to the extent that he has not, uh, you know, outwardly or expressly uh, uh, spoken against Kuanan and in, in many ways he's actually embraced them, I think, again, plays to her level of confidence in in, in skewing this, this sort of rhetoric. And then thirdly, I just think, candidly, we're in a very— this is an unprecedented time, and I think because of the stress— Uh, on communities, the stress on families and individuals. I think uh, people are probably a little more susceptible to uh, conspiracy theories and outlandish ideas uh, uh, because of just how weird this moment is. And I think she's taking advantage of that as well.
1: Greg, let's emphasize before we move on that, as you said, uh, members of the Republican delegation in Georgia – have repudiated Marjorie Taylor Greene. So have some of the national Republican congressional leaders at this point. So, what she represents is a dilemma that, in fact, the Republican Party has, uh, not that she now represents the ma- main thinking of Republicans across the board. Is that a fair statement?
2: Yeah, yeah. This demonstrates the the thin line that they're trying to, to to walk between kind of the radical elements of the party and and and, and the more mainstream Republicans they need to win over. Um, but I will say that that while while many Republican leaders have repudiated her, others have have remained silent, um, including the governor, including yeah. U.S. Um, you know, Senator Perdue. Um, so so, the, so so some are just kind of staying in their lane and not focusing on other races, while others have said that. Okay. Um, that her rhetoric
1: is is, is dangerous. All right, Brian Robinson, before we move to the next congressional race, I assume that you or your candidate are going to be called or already have been called by the AJC, maybe by Bluestein and other reporters Mm -hmm. to respond to what Marjorie Taylor Greene said yesterday. So, although I really don't want to go too far with you on this, Mm -hmm. what is the campaign's official response to Marjorie Taylor Greene's interview on WSB last night.
0: Well, Bill, there was nothing new in the interview last night. I appreciate Justin Gray doing that story and making sure that more people are aware of uh, the things that she is saying. But, you know, one thing that I think is a takeaway from that interview with Justin is when approached with her own words, she can't defend what she said. She diverts. She says you're... You know, charging uh, me because I'm a conservative. She can't face the music uh, to her own record. She can't explain it, and it just goes to show she's she's a YouTube star, not a Congresswoman. And at the end of the day, Georgia needs all 14 members of Congress to be effective, to have good committee assignments, to be able to bring home the projects, and to. Uh, the policies that we need for Georgia, whether that's fighting for our water rights or getting transportation funding or protecting our military bases. And somebody like her, who will be uh, rejected by the party, won't be able to effectively represent Georgia. And uh, beyond that, if she is the nominee for the Republican Party, every other Republican is going to be asked to uh, give their commentary on her comments, on her viewpoints. And that's not good for President Trump. That's not good for Senator Perdue. It's not good for Kelly Weffler and Doug Collins.
1: All right, so there you have it. We just happen to have uh, the uh, opposing <laughs> campaign on. So there's the uh, statement that we'll be hearing, I, I suspect, throughout the, the kind of statement we'll be hearing throughout the day. Greg, let's talk just for a minute about the ninth District, which is also a runoff that people are paying attention to, largely because it features Matt Gertler, uh uh, Dr. No in the Georgia legislature, but also someone who has, well, both of the candidates in that race, I think I'm fi- right to say, have kind of embraced a, a, far, a further to the right ideology or certainly people in the further right.
2: Yeah, I think that's accurate to say. Um, Matt, Gertler, this is this is the race for Doug Collins uh, U.S. House seat um, in another very conservative Northeast Georgia district, right next door to the 14th district. And Matt Gertler uh, won. Very few fans in the Georgia legislature uh, alienated a lot of Republican leaders for voting no on just about every piece of legislation that came before the House, um, and yet he um, thrived doing that, doing the primary, a very another very crowded primary, ended up. Um, short of an outright victory, but but first place among all the other candidates, and he's facing Andrew Clyde, who is an Athens, uh, dis- the owner of an Athens gun store, who actually um, fought uh, fought fought an IRS in the Capitol and ended up getting a um, in U.S. Capitol and ended up getting a legislative law named after him.
1: Alan, you want to jump in on this one?
2: Yeah, well, it's another, uh,
3: Kate, well, here you have two pretty controversial candidates, but Girdler in particular, uh, I think, has been called out for associating with another, uh, openly with uh, an individual who's considered, or is clearly a white supremacist, uh, and refusing to disavow the support of that person. Um, So we've also seen a number of prominent Republicans uh, coming into that race and and, uh, uh, trying to uh, influence the outcome of that primary. It doesn't always work, though, you know, when you have uh, outsiders come into a, a, a primary contest, uh, elected officials from outside the district, and try to influence, sometimes voters react negatively to that. Um, so it remains to be seen if those interventions are actually successful. But you know, one of those two candidates is going to end up in Congress, and whoever wins the, um, you know, the 14th district primary is also uh, almost certainly going to end up in Congress.
1: Yeah, I mean, those are obviously both particularly safe Republican districts uh, right. in the state, unless something really, really unexpected happens. Before we take our first break, Alan, I, I mean, I'm sorry, Caesar. Uh, I just got an email from a listener who hasn't given me permission to use her name, so, so I won't. Uh, but here's what she says. Having grown up in Whitfield County, I wish I thought her words, talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene, would be a hindrance, but... I don't. And, and, and I think there's a fear that a Brian Robinson has in terms of his campaign, Caesar, that it's possible that it's so conservative in that 14th district that people will imbr- will embrace her uh, despite her words or because of her words. Caesar, you can give us a last uh, a word on that before mm-hmm. we break.
4: We are in a time of, of, of uh,
2: intense
4: polarization politically. Uh, and it's a primary, and so if you are a candidate running in a a district that is very polarized politically, uh, and it's a primary, you're going to play to the majority uh, of uh, the voters in that polarized uh, district in the primary. I mean, it's bottom line, just nothing more to say to that. All right,
1: let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. Want to come back. Want to talk about the two U.S. Senate races and uh, also about how the presidential race is shaping up in Georgia on this edition of Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Uh, Brian Robinson, Cesar Mitchell, Alan Abramowitz, and Greg Bluestein uh, with us today. Um, two U.S. Senate races in Georgia that are attracting national attention, of course. Senate race number one now pits John Ossoff, the Democrat, against David Perdue, the Republican. And then, of course, the uh, Senate race number two, which really is for that Johnny Isaacson seat, which Kelly Loeffler was appointed uh, to fill by Governor Kemp. Yeah is a, a, a race with more than 20 uh, uh, candidates. Uh, the big uh, contest there being between Leffler and Collins, uh, hoping one of them will get into a, at least a runoff, if not both of them. That is certainly possible. And then uh, several Democrats, uh, higher profile Democrats that we'll talk about in just a second. I'm going st- Alan Abramowitz, I'm going to start with you on this if I may. Um, we have a couple of polls. Uh, of Georgia right now, and they include the Senate race, and mm-hmm. I'm interested in 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 the um, in the Mon- first of all the Monmouth poll. Now Monmouth is typically regarded as a very reputable uh, pollster. Before we talk about what they found, did you look at the metrics that they'd, the way they conducted this poll and find any reason to think it's suspect at all? Did they is their data pretty
3: right spot on? I think so. Uh, I mean, of course, you're going to get just some uh, variation uh, between one poll and another, even if they're done very well, uh, just due to the sampling variation um, and slight okay, differences so, in methodology.
1: Okay, so in the Purdue-Assoff contest, they have uh, David Purdue leading Assoff 49% to 43 percent uh brian robinson it it's it doesn't brian not surprising at this stage in the campaign i don't think that uh purdue might be uh, up a bit although we have other polls that show them in a dead heat uh what do you make of 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 that race right
0: now well It's hard to say, really, because that poll is of registered voters, not of likely voters. And I'm sure Alan could probably tell us a lot about the difference there. But the likely voter polls are going to be much more accurate predictors of what's going to come. I have trouble believing that poll, that Biden and Trump are in a dead heat and Purdue is that far ahead of off outside of the margin of error. I also have trouble believing that uh, Leffler and Collins are both ahead of the nearest Democrat. That poll has Kelly Leffler getting more of the black vote than Raphael Warnock. Now, something just doesn't seem to add up about that, right? I mean, so I'm just very dubious of this and don't want to give it too much weight. But hey, let's say it's true. Let's say it's dead on. If that's the case, Republicans are in much better shape than the national media narrative would have you believe, Uh, even if Trump is in a dead heat with Biden. uh, Purdue being up that much would be significant, especially considering historically Republicans and Democrats run fairly evenly in Georgia at this time of year. What we have seen is a pattern where Republicans run tight and then October begin to separate themselves as independents break uh, toward Republicans because they're conservative-leaning in Georgia. So we'll see if that happens in the presidential race. But if Purdue has a lead now, and Leffler and Duck Collins both have a lead over Democrats, Republicans obviously have a lot of momentum. They have a lot of energy. And I do think one advantage that Georgia Republicans have is that, though nationally the Democrats have all the polling advantages, there's obviously a lot of momentum for them. The, the president's approval ratings are not where they need to be in a re-election year. But the energy on the Republican side for President Trump is greater than the energy for Joe Biden. Democrats are motivated by a hatred of Trump, but they don't really care too much about Joe. And that could be uh, something that's significant in a very tight Georgia race.
3: Uh, I have to take issue with that in part. Um, Everything we've seen in the national polling and in the swing state polling uh, indicates to me that uh, there's tremendous uh, uh, energy on the Democratic side. Now, it's true that Democrats are motivated more by opposition to President Trump than by support for Joe Biden, but that really doesn't matter. Uh, And it's normal. In uh, an election where you have an incumbent running for re-election, that uh, the election revolves around the incumbent. Um, and that's particularly true this year with, with President Trump. Uh, so I think the fact that Democrats are highly motivated by a desire to defeat President Trump does not indicate that they're going to have uh, any difficulty getting Democratic voters out to vote. We saw in the primary, for example, that Democratic turnout was considerably greater than Republican turnout, um, that there were a lot more Democratic voters who participated in that in that primary now that doesn't necessarily mean that will happen on election day as well but uh, it's it's certainly an indication that there's a high level of interest uh, and um, motivation on the on the Democratic side I think I think we're going to see a strong turnout on both sides, no doubt but I I do think that you'll see a strong Democratic turnout and I think the outcome of the Senate race uh, will hinge particularly on what happens in the presidential race uh, there's not going to be a big split between the two that just doesn't happen anymore
4: I, I, with respect to the presidential race, I, 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 you know, with respect to the presidential race, I, I tend to think that um, there is a lot of energy on the Democratic side, and and to the extent that you you that energy is not associated with Biden, it certainly is associated with making a change. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of energy directed against President Trump. Um, but I think there is a significant amount of what I would call Biden adoption at this point. You've got Democrats who are getting excited about Biden, and I think the Biden campaign knows how important it's going to be to select the right vice, pre- vice president, uh, vice presidential candidate uh, to be a part of the ticket because that's going to add uh, to uh, the math depending upon which state you're in. George, I think is important to that. Uh, but it's, it's also going to add to the, to the energy uh, as well. I mean, the right pick of a VP candidate can actually uh, further energize uh, the Democratic uh, base and the Democratic electorate. With respect to the Senate race, my, my only thought about that, and that's, this is with respect to both uh, contests, I think what we're seeing in terms of the polling may be more of a reflection of the intense uh, media campaign, Ah, uh, campaigns that we're seeing uh, on the part of the candidates. I, I think we're seeing a we're seeing a lot of media play, uh, and as a result, I think, for example, it strengthened it has strengthened uh, Senator Leftless' numbers, or she's been out there very, very strong, probably more present in many ways than than uh, 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 Congressman Collins, uh, and and I think you're seeing that uh, reflect also. In uh, uh, the uh, race between Purdue uh, and and also,
2: so, yeah, more than 60 million dollars has already been either spent or reserved uh, in Georgia's two-cent contest. Uh, obscene amount of money, and just today, uh, a an out, another outside group emerged with the acronym GUV. Um, obviously, uh, Governor Brian Kemp's allies uh, that are that are pumping in about $1.5 million in the next two weeks alone for Senator Loeffler. Um, on the President Trump um, versus Biden in Georgia, uh, you know, one, one campaign that thinks this is a close race is definitely President Trump's campaign because mm. you've seen him spending money already um, on that contest. In June, he aired his first radio ads in Georgia, which was unheard of in terms of how early it is. And then just, just Monday, um, he unveiled a sweep of TV ads that will be playing in Georgia and other um, states that Republicans won four years ago. North Carolina, Arizona, Florida, and Georgia are the four states where, where they are focusing um, a, a new ad volley on. And again, this is before Joe Biden has even aired a single um, Georgia-targeted ad in our state. And only last week did he uh, unveil his team of advisors in Georgia. So he has very little... Um, campaign infrastructure here, while Trump is being forced to play defense. But I
4: yeah, would do I the that'd... same. I would do the same really quickly if I was Trump. I could do the same. I mean, there is a strong likelihood that the 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 vice presidential candidate will come from the South. So, uh, so that's that's that. I would do the same.
3: Yeah, I, I would agree. I, and I, I think it's very significant that we're seeing the Trump campaign pouring money into a state like Georgia. Uh, And they're also having to spend money in some other states that they won easily four years ago, Uh, states like Iowa, states like Ohio, uh, and even Texas. Um, The polling in all of these states, which were not swing states four years ago, which were won by President Trump by margins of five to ten points, uh, shows that uh, Joe Biden is very competitive in all of those states. And that's consistent with the fact that he's also leading by a considerable margin in some of the states that were narrowly won by President Trump uh, four years ago, including Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, even Florida. Uh, So um, President Trump cannot afford to lose any of those states. Um, And right now, he is in danger of losing any number of states that he won four years ago. Uh, And uh, there are no states that Joe Biden, uh, that Hillary Clinton won four years ago that right now are are a uh, Celtic Republican, not one that I can think of. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, uh, Brian, as a, as a guy who's done a lot of political consulting, you know full well that uh, in a national campaign, uh, you don't want to be forced to come in and spend money in a state that you think should be in your column almost automatically, and Georgia is, has been one of those for Republicans for decades, uh, and yet the Trump people are now forced to play here, which means that to some extent, they're even though they've raised an extraordinary amount of money, they have to measure their resources in other states uh, where they might have e- uh, other problems they're dealing with. It's never a good situation to have to spend money in a state you think you should have in your pocket, right, Brian?
0: No doubt about that, Bill. And, and you already see them beginning to move some chess pieces around the board. They have – the Trump campaign has pulled out of Michigan. They were up on the air there, and they no longer are, and they have re-upped their buy here in Georgia. You know, I assume what they're trying to do is to try to get some room between them and Biden here, and then maybe if, if their numbers can get a little bit up outside the margin of error, they can pull out and move those resources elsewhere if Georgia begins to go in more of the traditional pattern – but who's to say that's that's going to happen? Obviously, North Carolina, Florida, Arizona, these are states that Trump won where things look to be tight as a tick in, in all of those. And so it's going to be a continued game of chess as they move pieces around to try to get to that magic number in the Electoral College. And you know they've already spent, I mean, just a historic amount of money at this juncture uh, in the campaign. Uh, to be behind in, in national polls. But I think what's going to change things, Bill, is Biden has been running a campaign of silence from the basement, and it's been a strategy, right? Sometimes doing nothing is a strategy. And that has been the Biden strategy, and it can't continue. At some juncture, he's going to have to face the music. Uh, Americans will be able to see him on the debate stage where he has underperformed and underwhelmed through the primary. He's going to have to pick a vice presidential candidate. There's tremendous pressure on him from the the left, the Bernie bros, to get somebody who's going to be – just tasteful to Middle America. Somebody that's going to be too extreme. You know, there's Representative Bass from uh, California who has said, you know, sweet loving things about Fidel Castro. Those sort of things are going to be toxic in a general election, and that's going to be the, what changes these dynamics.
1: All right. Now you've heard how Republicans are going to counter
0: what, what, whatever
1: Biden does, which is perfectly fair. That's one of the reasons Brian's here. But, Greg, I do have to point out one word in what Brian just said. Uh, well, three words for in the basement. This has become a real trope for the Trump folks in terms of Joe Biden. It's always in the basement. It's not from his den. it's not he's his it is living. It's in the basement, Greg. But okay, let's without regard to that. We we have to get to a break in a minute, but before we do, Brian already I think did make a good point about the um the, the waiting of this poll from Monmouth, but but okay, let's just assume for a minute that they've captured a decent snapshot. I think the sec the Senate race number two numbers. I'd love for you to take a shot at it, and then I think Alan should as well. Um, so they show Leffler ahead of the pack in that second. Remember, it's a mixture of Democrats and Republicans running in the same race. She's at twenty six. Collins is at twenty. Matt Lieberman at fourteen. Raphael Warnock at nine. Um, what do you? make of those numbers and does it tell us anything not so much about necessarily Leffler and Collins but Lieberman and Warnock
2: yeah um well first on the Leffler and Collins race um Leffler's camp was obviously ecstatic they had seen they had said internal numbers were showing them starting to take a lead over over Doug Collins and they and they mainly attributed to her strong stance or her her actually her her criticism of the Black Lives Matter movement, which was done to appeal to to conservative voters in the Trump base. Um, On the um, Warnock-Lieberman front, it's really interesting because um, we were talking about ads earlier, and and Reverend Warnock's campaign has has yet to uh, do a significant ad buy. He um, has just spent about $2.6 million on a big volley of ads, so I expect the numbers to start to change. But the very fact that that Matt Lieberman, without spending – really any money other than on digital ads and having very little um, personal name recognition and very little activity has been neck and neck with Warnock, not just in this poll, but in others, to show him trailing, but only by a few percentage points, um, has has raised some alarms among some Democrats who are worried um, that that he will remain on the radar because obviously Warnock is the party-backed candidate. More than half of Senate Democrats have endorsed him. Stacey Abrams has endorsed him. Chuck Schumer has endorsed him as well as you know, he was just on the stage with three former presidents a few days ago at John Lewis's funeral. You can't have a higher kind of platform than that. And yet he's still struggling in the polls against against Matt Lieberman, um, who is other than his famous last name, is very little known in political circles here in Georgia. I
1: yeah, do I, think I'm, we should point out that this poll is prior to, I think, the Lewis funeral. But in, right. in any sure. case, Alan, why don't you respond before we take a break?
3: Well, I think what's significant right now is that there's only 1 candidate among the entire field who so far has. Been spending a lot of money, and it's a tremendous amount of money. On advertising in this state, and that's Kelly Lessler. Um She's poured millions of dollars into TV ads going back for months. Uh, to the point where a lot of voters are probably surprised that her name wasn't on the ballot on June 9th. Um, so, it's hardly surprising that she's pulling ahead. Collins doesn't seem to be very visible to me uh, at all. And the Democrats haven't been spending anything. So I just don't think the numbers at this point mean very much. Uh, I think as we go forward and approach um, the general election that you're going to see uh, Warnock in particular, I think, uh, um, spending a lot more money. Um, He's the candidate clearly who has the backing of uh, the vast majority of Democratic elected officials in Georgia and around the nation. And I would expect him to pull ahead of Matt Lieberman and to ultimately be the uh, candidate who makes it into a runoff against either Kelly Loeffler or Doug Collins.
1: Caesar, how are you watching that race? I do want to give you a chance before we break. And have you expressed, have you declared for one of the candidates mm-hmm. in that Democratic, of the Democrats in that field?
4: I have not, but I, I really cannot add anything to what Alan has just said. I think it's early yet. Uh, I think what we're seeing currently is the um, media buy bump, but I think things will start to make sense in the next in the next thirty to forty five days uh, when you start seeing uh, more significant buys by Warnock.
1: All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break out of the way. Uh, When we come back, two items I really want to take up. One is a model that Alan Abramowitz has been using to uh, 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 prognosticate the outcome of presidential races for quite some time. He's changed his thinking a little bit this time. That'll be interesting to hear. Uh, And number two, uh, let's talk a bit about uh, President Trump's comments about John Lewis in an interview he gave to Axios just the other day. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Um, Caesar Mitchell, let's dispense rather quickly with the comments President Trump made in an interview with Axios that aired on HBO last night. He was asked about uh, if he wanted to say anything about John Lewis, uh, and he said this, I don't know John Lewis. Lewis. He chose not to come to my inauguration. I never met John Lewis. Um, he was asked if he found Lewis impressive, and here's what he said, quote, I find a lot of people impressive. I find a lot of people not impressive. He didn't come to my inauguration. He didn't come to my State of the Union speeches, and that's okay. That's his right. Again, nobody's done more for black Americans than I have. Uh, Caesar, your thoughts? I mean, you, you really want my
4: thoughts? I mean, I mean so, yeah. yeah.
1: No, no, seriously, I Okay,
4: I, I, so first of all, I think uh, I actually was surprised that uh, President Trump didn't make um, some positive statements uh, about Congressman Lewis uh, in the wake of his passing. I was actually surprised because I just think uh, politics 101 uh, is that when someone of, of John Lewis's stature passes away, uh, that you you say at least something halfway night. uh, but at minimum say nothing. Uh, and I guess he couldn't resist the urge uh, to not say anything. But then the other thing I thought was very interesting is that he turned it back onto himself and he made it all about himself, which again, I think is another mistake. I don't care if you are, uh, you know, way on the right, uh, you know, you know, whenever Jakanlis and Lewis spoke in the in, in Congress, you know, it didn't matter if you were a Republican or a Democrat, you listened, because he treated people with basic, fundamental respect on both sides of the aisle. And so he always was able to get the listening ear of both sides, even if they didn't agree. I mean, I think the, the greatest, I mean, the best example I saw, of so how someone who may not agree with Lewis on all matters or many matters, uh, still speak highly of him was was President George Bush? I mean, he spoke his truth when he uh, spoke at the funeral and talked about the fact that they didn't always agree but they both love this country uh, and they believe in the values that underpin uh, our constitution and and really uh, uh, our, our, our fundamentals.
1: Real quick, Brian, just a very quick moment uh, this is not the kind of state these are not the kinds of statements. That are going to encourage African Americans to become converts to the Republican Party, something that many people in in the party, like yourself, would like to see happen. Sure, and
0: I, but the, here's the thing: he, he didn't attack John Lewis. He didn't say anything ugly about him. He did what what Caesar said. He just didn't say much of anything when asked directly. He just sort of diverted. So he did not go out of his way to attack John Lewis. Okay, and Okay, and, and look, it, it's very much like it's not just partisan. I mean, he didn't like John McCain, and you know, kind of handle it the same way when John McCain died, a member of his own party.
1: Okay, um, I, I th- thank you for for mm-hmm. responding to that. All right, look, we're we don't have as much time as I'd like for this, but Alan Abramowitz, I think the first time you used your time for change model to predict. Uh, what you thought was going to unfold in a presidential race was back in 1992. Is that correct? That's Something right. Something like that. Okay. Your new model. Your yeah. uh, your work. You've got the new model now. You have an article that we can post a link to from uh, Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball that was just published this morning. In the past, your model has been linked to the uh, economy. It's the economy, stupid. And it's been linked to uh, the re-election campaign of an incumbent president. Uh, But you, this time around, say things have changed dramatically. It's not the economy right now. It's not even the uh, re-election, the fact that he's an incumbent. Without going into the mathematics, which will set my hair on fire, why is this election different in terms of how you're modeling Uh, the the, so, the outcome, and why isn't the economy what matters most right now?
3: Well, normally, uh, most political science forecasting models, including mine, uh, rely on what we consider to be the fundamentals underlying these elections. Uh, and the economy, of course, is generally one of the fundamentals underlying the election. A strong economy is always beneficial to the incumbent. A weak economy or a recession is going to hurt the campaign of the incumbent. Uh, what's different right now, of course, is that we are in this pandemic, uh, and the attention of the public is focused overwhelmingly on that, and that is what's really driving uh, the public's view of the president and the public's view of the election, frankly. Uh, and uh, so it's really, it's really not about the economy, and it's not really about the advantage of incumbency because Trump, in my view, has thrown away the advantage of incumbency. Um, he's rare among incumbents, if not unique, in not trying to reach out beyond his own party's base. Uh, And that's where the advantage of incumbency actually comes from. So when we model this simply as a function of the president's approval rating, which depends largely on his handling of the pandemic, um, what we see is that he enters the crucial stage of the campaign here with a negative 15 approval rating, meaning his disapproval rating is 15 points higher than his approval rating in the Uh, average computed by a real, clear politics, and that's very similar to what we see in other places. Uh, And that just puts him in a very weak uh, position, and that's the number I would watch very closely. In order to have any realistic chance of winning this election, it doesn't matter what he says about Joe Biden. Uh, I'm sorry to say this to my Republican friends here, but Joe Biden is not the issue in this election. Donald Trump is the issue in this election. When you have an incumbent like Donald Trump, the election's about him and whether voters are prepared to grant him another four years in the White House. And unless he gets his job approval number up closer to where at least approval is close to disapproval, if not higher, then I'd say his chances of winning a second term are minimal.
1: Greg, real quick, um, the two things that Alan says in this article that I find really interesting, people are not blaming Trump for the economy because they think it's the pandemic that has caused the economy to crash. But he says something also very important, that the economy has become as partisan as everything else. If you're a Republican who supports Trump, you think the economy's fine. If you're a Democrat who doesn't like Trump, you think it's a disaster. Your turn, Greg.
2: Yeah, just like everything else becomes partisan, from masks to science to— the economy um so does the the pandemic response and um you know it's what strikes me about Allen's analysis is is that as much as we're talking about who Biden can pick as his running mate in, in within the next week and and there's two georgians who he could potentially select um it sounds like it might not even matter in the, in in the game if 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 so much of the attention is focused on on a basically a referendum on Trump and not on Biden
1: um, Brian, real quick, your response. We got about three minutes
0: left in the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, um, I I need people like Alan to explain to me when because I read the article had a lot of graphs and stuff. I get confused, so I, I kind of need the Cliff Notes version to to fully understand it. But I, what I, my takeaway from it was, he said Trump's got a thirty percent chance. Is that right, Alan? Thirty percent. Is That what your conclusion right. was? Right. Uh, which is actually higher than I've seen in some other similar uh, type of predictions, like the, the Economist magazine, for example. I think has it more right. like fifteen percent. So um, I, I think if you look at the landscape right now, his approval rating, his polling in the states that he won last year, that are that are swing states, uh, I definitely got to think that Trump's at a disadvantage. But let us not forget that. For reasons I don't understand that I don't think really anybody understands, all the rules that we've always trusted don't apply to Trump. And it is just something that's been proven time and time again. He does things that would destroy other people, and he just sort of breezes through it. He went into Election Day right, look, with almost no chance of winning in 2016. Let's not forget not that. Trump. And he pulled it off.
1: And and, and and as we run out of time, Caesar, that hmm. is— as Democrats who don't want Trump reelected, the nightmare that you all worry about most.
4: Either. Yeah, the, the election is, is still, you know, two more than two months away. It's going to be much closer than I think anyone's guessing or thinking at this moment in time. So I think as Democrats, we have to stay focused. Republicans need to be prepared to to, to, to bear it out.
1: All right, let's do. We're out of time, Alan Abramowitz. There's a lot more that we can unpack about your model. Will you come back at some point, relatively soon? Let's do it even more. Is that all right with you? Absolutely. Thank you. We always love it. Thank you, Professor Brian Robinson. Always a pleasure. Caesar Mitchell, thank you for coming back. Greg Bluestein, great to have you with us. We'll look for your byline in the AJC uh, coming up, probably uh, tomorrow morning, all over the paper. That's it for us today. Tomorrow we talk about women in politics with a great panel of women in politics or observing politics. I'm Bill Nygut. Until then, take care and please stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.